Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a regular feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you already may know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the, question, with the questions. Today, my guest on the show is Luke Melhauser. Luke is the executive director of the Singularity Institute and the author of many articles on AI safety and the cognitive science of rationality. He's also the host of the Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot podcast, and his work is collected and can be seen at lookprog.com. Hello, Luke, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Thanks. It's great to be here. Fantastic. We're very happy to have you here today, too. So let's jump right into our interview with the first question. Luke, can you please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? And the reason I'm asking this is because we all know that the reason I get my guests on the show is their work and the, the things that they're interested in. But I would like to make the connection between the person's personality and what they do, their goals and their motivation. So in this way, hopefully we provide a fuller picture. Yeah, as I actually say in the first chapter of my online book, FacingTheSingularity.com, you know, this kind of information about me is some evidence about how you should respond to everything else I say. So I think that it is a, a good question to ask. Uh, my short life story is that I was raised a evangelical Christian in Minnesota, USA, in the frozen north, the land of lakes. And my father was and is a pastor of a small church there. And I didn't really escape my little Christian evangelicalism bubble until my early 20s. And that was when I discovered that Christianity was false, that um, supernaturalism is false, that science is the best way that we know so far to figure out uh, how the world actually works. And that was at first hugely crushing because all of my values and my meaning and my purpose in life had been wrapped around the idea that um, you know God was in control of my life and uh, had purposes for me. Uh, so after that I had to search for meaning and value and purpose on my own uh, in a world made of atoms, and uh, and I found it pretty quickly. It wasn't that hard. There have been billions of non-religious people for thousands of years who have lived plenty of, uh, lives of plenty of meaning and purpose. Um, but I just had to discover that for myself. The other thing, though, that my deconversion from religion did was to make me realize that wow, I had been incredibly confident about something that was completely wrong. Uh, in thousands of particular ways. And so there's something wrong with my brain where it's obviously not an ideal seeker after truth. And so this led me to the study of human biases and heuristics and debiasing techniques that you can use to get around the sort of tricks that your mind will play on you. And so through all of that, I eventually stumbled ac- across the website lesswrong.com, where a lot of that literature is collected and turned into uh, blog posts that are kind of like really exciting to read and everything. Uh, And then that was also where I encountered the material about artificial intelligence and in particular about the idea that once we create a machine that is as talented as we are at things like technology design and 
general reasoning, then it will be able to either improve its own intelligence or create machines that are more intelligent than it is. And then those machines will have even greater intelligence with which to improve their own intelligence. And you can get this positive feedback loop uh, by which the intelligence of the machines vastly surpasses the intelligence of humans. And at that point, we have a problem because intelligence is what gives us control of the planet. That's the reason, you know, it's not because we're fast or strong, it's because we're smart. And so intelligence is just uh, sort of like a general ability to optimize the world according to your preferences. And so once you have a being that is more uh, able to optimize the world according to its preferences than humans are, uh, you have to start to worry about what that being's um, preferences are and whether they accord with your own. So that's the issue of intelligence explosion or machine superintelligence. And I began to take those ideas very seriously as I studied them. And I moved from where I was living in Los Angeles at the time to Berkeley and joined the Singularity Institute as an intern, taught some uh, rationality camps there, and also wrote the organization's first strategic plan and did a lot of other work, um, wrote uh, a lot of articles for Less Wrong and, and a chapter for a forthcoming book on the Singularity from Springer Press. Uh, and then I was hired as a researcher in September and made the executive director of the organization in November. And so now I'm, uh, you know, trying to organize and run the organization that is doing the most direct research on this problem of uh, what to do when AI starts to approach human levels of general ability. That's a, that's a fascinating story. I was personally not aware of your uh, Christian evangelical background, and I would have never imagined it. Uh, based on the the interviews and the videos that I've seen with you before, so that's really fascinating. And and let me dig a little deeper in it. Then, so you've come a long way from the frozen lakes of Minnesota, and and from for a son of a preacher. So first of all, there's a little gap between uh, Minnesota and Los Angeles. I mean, you've already told us how you made it from Los Angeles to Silicon Valley and and to the Singularity Institute, but what about that that period from Minnesota to uh, Los Angeles, and and particularly, how did you make such a radical transition from the world from the world of faith into the world of uh, the scientific method, the world of rationality, uh, the world of doubt, if you will? Uh, yeah. And and what aided your transition? Well, when I went away to college and left my small town of 10,000 people and went to Minneapolis and started going to college, I uh, started going to, a, when I was still a believer, I started going to a church um, that was less about theology and more about living out the way of Jesus and uh, showing the love of Jesus to a lost and hurting world. And so I was really passionate about that and I wanted that to be my life's mission. But I had to figure out what that meant. Like there are lots of different pictures of who Jesus was and what Jesus' mission was. So in order to answer that question, I started to study the historical Jesus. And that was where my faith started to run into facts that were not consistent with my faith. Uh, things like, you know, uh, a large portion of the New Testament is made of known forgeries. Um, the mission of Paul was quite different from the mission of Jesus, and modern Christianity almost looks more like the the Paulinism than you know anything related to Jesus. 
Uh, and these sorts of things are even taught in seminaries, but just not uh, taught from the pew because it might be too disturbing to the faith of uh, uneducated believers. Um, there's a there's a really good book by, uh, I think it's called The Dishonest Church or something that's about the difference between what's taught in seminaries and what's taught to the layperson in uh, American religion. Uh, but anyway, so I started studying the historical Jesus and finding all these very disturbing things and I knew that I had to dig deeper even though it was very frightening to me because I loved my Christian faith and it, it was what uh, supported all of my dreams and hopes and purpose and relationships. Uh, but I dug further, I dug into Christian apologetics, books that defend the Christian faith against, uh, against facts, you might say. Uh, and then, uh, so this led me into philosophy in general and trying to figure out what's the best way to reason about things in general. And in the end, I just couldn't support my Christian faith anymore. I couldn't believe what I was starting to realize was, was full of uh, dishonest lies. And so I had to leave religion and find my own way. Uh, the move to Los Angeles was actually mostly unrelated to my religious deconversion. Uh, that one was pretty simple. I stepped out my front door one February and was greeted with physical pain for having done so due to the cold wind and decided that humans probably shouldn't have ever populated Minnesota, that this was just a necessary mistake, uh, and so I should move to California. So I threw everything that I owned into my Buick LeSabre and drove to California, and I didn't know anyone in California or even which city I wanted to stay in, so I used a website called couchsurfing.com to stay with local people in about 20 different cities in California for about a two-month period, and then in the end, uh, decided that L.A. was where I wanted to stay. So uh, went on Craigslist and got an apartment and got a job. Fascinating. Uh, by the way, I am here in Canada, uh, which is uh, on average much colder and much further north, uh, even though Toronto is the, the very south of, of Canada. And we are currently experiencing the hottest, uh, warmest, mildest winter ever in record or something like that in terms of average temperatures and in terms of snow. I mean, we haven't had any snow whatsoever this year. We had the six degree uh, Celsius Christmas Eve. Um, uh, so uh, in terms of the context of global warming, northern uh, locations such as Minnesota and Canada may actually in fact turn out to be very strategically placed. <laughs> they, they may become habitable, finally. Absolutely, yes. But uh, let me go back to the topic here, and which is, so what was the reaction of your family and your father, most notably, with all of this happening with you? First of all, physically removing yourself from your family's home, and then philosophically or ideologically kind of leaving the realm of, of faith. faith. Yeah, of course my parents took it very hard uh, because of their beliefs that they have about the world and it's just in general very hard for any parent to um, see their child sort of radically depart from their entire worldview and their value system and everything that they had raised them to be. Uh, so I remember in particular I decided on a particular day that I would tell my father that I couldn't believe in God anymore. I just couldn't make myself believe. And uh, we were on our way to The Fountain by Darren Aronofsky, a, a film. And uh, I told him on the way there, which was a big mistake because we both just sat in the cinema staring at the screen but not paying attention at all to the movie, just sort of quietly despairing at my loss of faith. 
And on the drive back, you know, my father just said, Luke, I'm so scared uh, for your soul. And it was a very emotional thing. And of course, you know, they're theologically committed to believing that their beloved firstborn son is going to be tortured in hell for eternity. Uh, and that's a very disturbing thought. That's a very disturbing belief to have. Um, but, you know, over time, you know, they're very, they're very loving parents and we're very close and we enjoy each other. And so these days we just mostly don't talk about it and we just enjoy each other every time I visit them for the holidays. I have, uh, because of my, the popularity of my atheism website, commonsenseatheism.com, I get a lot of people who contact me and tell me what happened when they came out to their parents. And I was very lucky because a lot of people, when they come out as atheists to their parents, are disowned by their family and completely cut off from contact with their family or, you know, other types of very bad reactions. So I really have a lot of respect for my parents for not having that kind of reaction and still, you know, wanting to uh, be, you know, in relation with me and talk with me and, and we can just enjoy each other. So I know it's very hard for them, but we still have good relationship, and I have pretty good relationships with the uh, Christian community that I grew up with in general. Yeah, I can totally sympathize with that because even though I'm another uh, condemned atheist, uh, my grandmother, for example, is a very uh, religious uh, Orthodox Christian, Eastern Orthodox Christian, and she prays for me and for my wife every day and so on and so on. And it's, it's, a huge, it's of huge importance in her life, um, religion that is. And the fact that I'm not present there is very hurtful to her. And I love her dearly, so I don't want to hurt her at, at all. But at the same time, I want to be uh, genuine and, and faithful to my own, my own beliefs and principles. And, and that this way we're caught in this dilemma. So we don't want to hurt the people we love. But at the same time, we have to be honest to our own selves. So I can totally sympathize with that. Uh, so, but let me move on then. Um, you were motivated in the beginning of your life by your desire to serve God, if I understand it properly. What about now then? What are you motivated by? Well, I am mostly motivated by um, not a fictional uh, representation of value from an invisible magical deity, but the kind of value that is real because it is built out of atoms. Um, there are agents in the universe who care about things and that's the source of value in the universe and that uh, sort of was built of smaller parts just like atoms were built of smaller parts there was a period during the early history of the universe when there weren't atoms either atoms aren't this fundamental thing uh, and neither is value but it just so happens that we live in a universe where there is value it didn't have to be the case but there is value in the universe uh, and in fact there's even value uh, very near us uh, in the universe. And so what I care about is figuring out what that value is, how it works, and preserving it as possible, it, preserving it if possible. And in particular, um, my studies of lots of different sciences and lots of uh, epistemology about how we would go about figuring out what's true and overcoming the biases in the way that our brains process information, uh, I've come to believe that humanity uh, faces a number of existential risks, risks to the existence of our species, 
Uh, it looks like every couple of decades we'll be able to invent a new way to destroy ourselves. Uh, the first was uh, nuclear weapons. If we fired off all of our nuclear weapons, we might go extinct. Uh, luckily, we haven't done that, but there were a couple of close calls already. Um, so, and then shortly, we may be developing synthetic biology. Uh, there was a recent re-engineering of the uh, bird flu virus that many experts say, if released, it's more contagious, basically, to humans, and so it could kill a third, a half of humanity. Um, so there are worries now from synthetic biology being as dangerous to ourselves as nuclear weapons are. Uh, and another one that seems to be on the near-term horizon is artificial intelligence for the reason that I said before is that intelligence is uh, this general power to be able to do things in the world according to your preferences. And human preferences are, uh, if you think about the space of all possible preferences, human preferences occupy this tiny pinprick of a dot in that space of possible preferences that's very contingent on our narrow evolution and cultural history and so on. The difference between humans and their preferences is just dwarfed by the difference in preferences that are possible by different mind architectures. Uh, and so if you build an AI that's as powerful as humans, it's extremely unlikely that it will share anything like our values. And that means that it's uh, very dangerous to our values um, because, well, the pithy way to say it is that the AI does not love you, nor does it hate you, but you are made out of atoms it can use for something else. So whatever its goals are, if its goals are to solve the Riemann hypothesis, one of the uh, famous unsolved problems in mathematics, uh, it'll just use its intelligence to take over as many resources as possible in order to solve the Riemann hypothesis, killing all humans in the process, but not because it cares about killing humans, but because uh, the continuation of human existence is not important to the AI. And so uh, what the Singularity Institute studies is this problem of how do you make a generally intelligent and powerful AI that is good for humanity instead of bad for humanity. And the difficulty is that a lot of commonly proposed naive solutions uh, turn out to not work. Um, like you might say, well, why not, why not just tell it to maximize happiness or something like that? Even if we knew how to specify what happiness was, um, that's not the sum total of what we want. It turns out that there are different systems in the brain for happiness or pleasure and what we desire, and happiness or pleasure is only one of the many, 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 many thousand shards of desire that we have in our neurobiology. And you can read this stuff in the, the recent uh, literature from the neuroeconomics or decision neuroscience or affective neuroscience or the neurobiology of preference. Um, so because of the complexity of our desires and preferences, it's very hard to imagine how we could build an AI that would have the same goals as we do and therefore result in good things for the world instead of bad things. Those are all very important questions and I would come back uh, to them uh, in our discussion a little bit later because before that I want to ask you the more general questions such as so where does the Singularity Institute fit within your general life's goals and motivation? Well, these days I'm very lucky to be working directly for the organization that if I was working somewhere else, I would try to uh, just save up money and donate it to the Singularity Institute. Um, it's very satisfying to be able to spend your entire day working on what you think is the most important problem in the world. Um, and so that's very satisfying. But I hope that people understand 
the importance of um, being able to financially support what you think is the most important mission because if you can make a significant amount of money because of the skills that you have and then uh, donate it to the Singularity Institute or whatever you think is most important, you can basically pay for, uh, say, five people of, of, my, uh, of my caliber or my effect on the world or something like that. Um, and that's more, moreover, there are oft, it's often the case that uh, if I wasn't doing this particular thing or, or somebody else wasn't doing a particular thing, um, somebody else would replace them and do similar to the same job as them. Uh, whereas people who donate, it's not necessarily the case that if they weren't donating, other people would be filling their shoes. So for those two reasons, um, uh, people should not feel bad at all about not working on their you know, what they think is the most important thing in the world if they can donate to what they think is the most important thing in the world. If you go to, I think it's highimpactcareers.com, you can uh, basically get this uh, analysis, or I'm sorry, I can't remember if that's correct, but it's 80,000hours.org uh, has, a, has a lot of explanation of how this works. But um, So yeah, I'm very privileged to work directly on for the Singularity Institute, but I want to make sure that people... Um, get that same warm, fuzzy feeling when they're supporting what they think is the most important mission in the world. That's, that's fantastic. So perhaps it's time to move on from your own personal history and, and uh, traits, uh, however fascinating they may be, to the overall goal and purpose of the Singularity Institute. What is it? Well, uh, it's basically what I explained earlier is that, um, you know, to, to explain it in full detail, uh, I'd have to walk you through a lot of, of AI architecture science and so on um, and the neurobiology of preferences. But uh, the short, short version is that uh, we're on the verge this century of creating machines that are more able to optimize the world according to their preferences than humans are. By default, any AI that you create will be bad for us because it will have different preferences than we have. Uh, and so we need to do what I call differential intellectual progress. Uh, before AI is created, we need to figure out solving particular problems in decision theory and mathematics and value theory, uh, cognitive science in general, uh, and have those solved before we solve the other problems of how to build powerful AI. So basically, we want to ha have the knowledge about how to build safe AI before we create AI that's more powerful than we are. Because if we create AI that's more powerful than we are, we might not have a second chance. Uh, we might not be able to ask the AI, hey, we messed up and gave you bad preferences. Could you just shut yourself down and we'll try again? No, because that's not going to satisfy the AI's preferences that it's programmed with. So uh, basically it's uh, a lot of technical problems in decision theory and mathematics and AI architectures and so on uh, that we need to solve so that we can prove that an AI will be good before uh, it becomes more powerful than we are. And that's the mission of the Singularity Institute. Now let me challenge you here a little bit uh, on the likelihood of, of such a mission. Um, I recently interviewed Robert J. Sawyer. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but he's a absolutely fantastic uh, science fiction author. He's the mastermind behind uh, TV series such as Flash Forward. Uh, he's won pretty much every uh, science fiction literary award that you can think of several times over, usually. 
Um, and one of the uh, very powerful works that I uh, read by him recently is a trilogy called uh, WWW, Wake, Watch and Wonder. And it is about um, an emergen the emergence of a web mind, what he calls web mind, the emergence of this artificial intelligence which emerges naturally on the internet and uh, its sort of interaction with the rest of humanity, uh, which is much of the time moderated by this blind, uh, brilliant uh, mathematical child prodigy girl who uh, is actually able to visually see the internet in a very specific way. Um, and then, so during that interview that I had with Robert J. Sawyer and during another event that I attended with him, he talked a lot about um, the last 200 years of science fiction, starting with Frankenstein, in which the idea has been the crazy scientist gives birth to his mind child, uh, you know, monster basically, that ends up killing either him or him and the rest of humanity. And then with respect to artificial intelligence, the three usual scenarios are the scenarios uh, of the Terminator, which is uh, the artificial intelligence basically exterminates us, the scenario of the Matrix, which they basically enslave us, uh, or, or make us basically like brains in a vat with sort of a virtual reality projected straight into our neocortex and then uh, fabricating a, a, an artificial reality for us while we are actually imprisoned. And then the last one is the assimilation possibility, which is the Borg scenario. In his opinion, however, the by far the most likely scenario is the one of friendly AI. And in, in that trilogy, he explores that possibility. And uh, there's a very serious and very strongly mathematically based uh, interaction uh, with respect to game theory and all that of the uh, reaction uh, of, say, for example, entities such as the US governments, which make numerous attempts to destroy and kill uh, that artificial intelligence because it's a threat to national security and it's a threat to the rest of the world because it's accelerating its progress so fast uh, that eventually it would become uh, God almighty almost. Uh, and all of those issues are being investigated in his work and in his opinion, uh, the by far most likely scenario is a peaceful coexistence and he goes through many, many reasons why an AI does not have an interest in uh, destroying us, but actually it's quite the opposite, the interest in preserving us and in the interest in, in us flourishing. Um, <clears throat> well, I haven't read his work at all. I've certainly heard this basic idea before. Um, unfortunately, I don't know what uh, particular game theoretic considerations he's using to make this prediction. Um, of course, we have to be careful not to generalize from fictional evidence, but instead make predictions about what AI will do from the math of decision theory and game theory and AI architectures, uh, and also the cognitive science of what we know about how human values are structured. Uh, and so when you do that, I think you're left with the conclusion that I gave earlier, which is that it's extremely difficult to specify what human preferences are because we 
evolved a thousand shards of desire that are often contradictory. And you know, you can read about the uh, three or maybe four systems in the brain that feed into the final common pathways for choice: the model-based, model-free, and Pavlovian systems. But that that's give precisely why he claims. That's precisely why he claims that the AI would be different from us. Uh, precisely because it did not evolve in a situation of scarcity, in, in a situation of competition uh, for scarce resources in which it was basically kill or be killed, right? He says in a world of, in a virtual world uh, with a virtual AI, you take care of the problem of scarcity and, and basically you, you live in an environment of abundance. And therefore, I mean, that's only one of the many reasons, but therefore, because it didn't evolve uh, like we did, it, it is unlikely to have this competitive and, and sort of uh, uh, evolutionary biases that we are exhibiting. Right, it, it's very important that I completely agree with um, most of that. The, the AI architectures, uh, we need to avoid anthropomorphizing AI. AI did not evolve with us and will not have the same kinds of you know, common sense or the same sets of preferences as we do, the same types of competitive drives. Um, instead, its drives will be determined by its utility function and the basic math of AI architectures. Um, the best paper on this is one from 2008 by Stephen Omohundro called The Basic AI Drives, where he analyzes what uh, convergent instrumental goals an AI will have. One of them is that it will want to, uh, AIs will converge towards having a utility function or basically being an optimizer, where it optimizes the world for its preferences, because that's the uh, sort of most powerful uh, type of AI to be. But there are other types of instrumental drives that an AI will acquire just in virtue of being an optimizer. One of them is that it will want to preserve its own existence because if it doesn't exist anymore, it can't optimize for its preferences. Uh, another is that it will want to acquire as many resources as possible uh, because with more resources, it can do a better job of optimizing the world according to its preferences. Another one is that it will want to remove threats to the fulfillment of its utility function. And uh, since humans don't have the same goals as the AI, uh, the AI will correctly recognize humans as a threat to its utility function, whether its utility function uh, says to uh, you know, solve the Riemann hypothesis uh, at all cost or do something else at all cost. Um, so there are particular reasons in the, um, the way that architecture, the AI architectures are set up and the way that utility functions work um, that lead me to believe that AIs will be by default dangerous. Um, it's correct. It's not because AIs evolved with us. It's because of the math of decision theory and utility theory. Uh, and, and I don't want to dispute all those possibilities at all. I'm a great sympathizer and, and a big fan of the work you guys do at the Singularity University. I mean, at the Singularity Institute. But I just wanted to suggest this as, as, a, uh, as something that you should investigate because I was not aware until very recently of, of those very thorough arguments. And I read the first book of the trilogy and I went ahead and I bought the second and the third one because it was just so fascinating, so hard science kind of uh, argued. It's, it's very logical, it's very mathematical, it's very hard science in some way. And in another way, it's very easy and accessible. So I would recommend that perhaps it would improve your arguments if you go through it. Yeah, I'll have to, um, you'll have to send me a link to his stuff to see if I can uh, find where those particular game theoretic arguments are so I can take a look at them. Absolutely. 
Uh, okay, so let's move on then um, to other issues such as, say for example, you've already mentioned that it's very important to support the Singularity Institute financially. But for others who do not have the capability to do so uh, with material terms, uh, then there's other venues. So how does one become an intern or researcher or in any other way associated with Singularity Institute to assist the work that you do? Yeah, there are many things that you can do. We have a large volunteer network of people who um, are able to assist according to the skills and talents that they have. And many people really find that satisfying um, because they think that the work we're doing is important and they follow our work and, and now they get to you know kind of interact with us and uh, work alongside us uh, on the mission. Um, so one way to do that is to email uh, you can just email me even, luke at singularity.org, or you can email our director of development, Louis Helm, at louis at, sing, uh, at singularity.org. Um, but there are other things to do as well. Uh, I mean, in general, uh, it would be good for people to be exerting effort on improving their own abilities and capacities uh, so that they are more able to do whatever it is that they think is important in the world. And... I think one very useful component of that is the rationality material that we uh, that we teach also at the Singularity Institute, which is basically, you know, how can you? It, it's so crazy. Humans are just incredibly irrational. We <laughs> we know, like for example, we know oftentimes we know exactly what would be good for us to do to fulfill our preferences, uh, and then we just don't do it. Or we, we do exactly the opposite. Or we do exactly the opposite. <laughs> like we know going on this particular diet would fulfill our preferences, and then we just don't do it. It's absolutely insane. Uh, and so, you know, if we were anything like an AI, we would just all go on our diet, take the, you know, business classes and investing classes that we need to take, you know, study 80 hours, you know, pass all our exams, uh, become very wealthy and do whatever we wanted in the world. But we're not. We're primates and we have all these ridiculous heuristics in the brain that cause us to not fulfill our preferences. So, uh, being aware of the particular ways in which your mind goes wrong and knowing which particular cognitive mental exercises you can use to uh, ameliorate those biases uh, can help you achieve your goals. But lots of other things are important too. I mean, uh, I often wish that a lot of people who were spending, too, I think there are a lot of people who maybe are spending too much time studying rationality when at this particular moment they should be studying social skills or business skills or something like that. So. Uh, sometimes the rational thing to do is to not study rationality so much, but to study other skills. And uh, so I would encourage people to improve their own capacities, seek out people who can help you uh, get better. And this will be the kind of thing that will make you more useful as a volunteer to the Singularity Institute or more useful as a collaborator with other organizations working on important things uh, or just better able to make a lot of money and donate to the causes that you think are most important. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, let me go back to the ideas here. Um, have your ideas and perception of artificial intelligence or the concept of artificial intelligence evolved from before you joined the Singularity Institute and after? And if they have, how and in, in what way? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, they certainly have. My, my probabilities on things are constantly updating as I'm interacting with different researchers and uh, doing literature searches and pulling out different data on things. So my timelines for when I would predict different types of uh, and, uh, relevant technologies to arrive 
uh, have evolved over time. My uh, my confidence intervals about when those uh, technologies would arrive have have evolved. Uh, my understanding of the interaction between the different strategic issues has evolved. My understanding of the interaction between um, the different mathematical components of AI design have, has changed over time. Uh, probably more interesting than the evolution of my own ideas, though, would be the evolution of ideas about AI in the mind of Eliezer Yudkowsky, our founder and lead researcher, because he's been thinking about these ideas and posting his ideas publicly for over 10 years now. And so you can see that uh, he's changed his mind several times from what he thought in 1996 to what he thought in 2001 to what he thought in 2009. Um, so, uh, yeah. We, the, you have to always update your beliefs in response to the data and the arguments that you encounter. And it's very important to be somebody who's able to do so. Um, and not just in a way where you verbally state that you're updating your beliefs, but then that you go on to make decisions that are consistent with your new beliefs and inconsistent with your old beliefs. Uh, and that's really important um, because we're not studying AI to get academic prestige and to get tenure and so on. We're studying AI because we think we have to get it correct or else bad things happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, we may not get a second chance. So we don't have the uh, opportunity to allow reality to beat us over the head with the truth like we often do in science where there's just we do enough experiments that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence. We have to change our mind as quickly as possible and predict uh, what's true about the world so that we can get this right the first time. Yeah, I, I agree entirely with that. And in, in support, I would say, I mean, that's the whole difference between science and religion, right? The scientific method is basically following the evidence no matter where it takes you. And then you have to reassess, reevaluate and adapt your hypothesis. And if need be, even discard it entirely and look for a new alternative explanation. Um, and by doing so, you or one demonstrates uh, embracing the scientific method rather than uh, superstitious beliefs. Um, and and that's, that's the whole issue here about religion and rationality. But let me throw this back at you in the following way. Some people say that the singularity is religion for geeks. Uh, rupture of the geeks is another way of putting it. Uh, Jaron Lanier once called it the Church of Robotics, for example. So what do you say to that kind of uh, criticism? I mean, taking it to the personal level with you, one can say, well, look at look, he used to be a Christian evangelical, you know, embracing God and the rupture and all of that. And now he just replaced God with the singularity and art, the almighty artificial intelligence, which would have the power to eventually uh, destroy us. So it's really nothing has changed. He just replaced one god with another. Uh, yes. Uh, the difference, of course, is that um, you know my current worldview is more informed by probability theory and science than by faith. But... Um, the the trouble the the criticism about the singularity being uh, religion or of the nerds or rapture of the nerds um, is often not that far off because the singularity term means a lot of things and a lot of people uh, that I meet think of the singularity as basically just excitement about the future and how technology and AI will just fulfill all our wildest dreams and create a utopia 
and we just need to like accelerate AI progress as much as possible so that we can fulfill all of our wildest dreams. Uh, and I think that that does have a lot of qualities of religious faith and not really looking seriously at the evidence about uh, how these things will evolve. Um, I think that uh, in particular, a, a lot of people that we have a pro we have a branding problem with the singularity term right now. Um, in up until about 2005, the term singularity meant um, in technology anyway, not mathematics and physics, but in technology, this term singularity meant uh, sort of the creation of machine superintelligence or maybe the process of radical self-improvement by which we reach machine intelligence or the fact that once we have an intelligence more intelligent than ourselves, we can't predict what the future will be like because we're not uh, steering the future anymore, something like that. Uh, and then in 2005, Ray Kurzweil published his book, the singularity is near, which had a different picture of the singularity. And so the meaning of the word singularity in the popular culture changed. Uh, and so that's a bit of a confusion a lot of times for people. Uh, Ray Kurzweil did an amazing job of bringing a lot of important and true transhumanist ideas to the world at large, where everybody else before him had failed. Um, so props to him for that. But it's a bit confusing uh, because there's like the machine superintelligence idea of singularity, which Ray does devote a chapter of his book to. Uh, but then Ray sort of more has uh, promulgated this idea of the singularity as uh, accelerating change for lots, maybe all technologies, and uh, sort of the technology feeding off on itself, humans having to cyborg themselves into connections with the machines in order to keep up with uh, technological progress. Um, and sort of very optimistic about the future of all that. Um, and so uh, I think that there's a lot of analyses for technological forecasting that can be more detailed than um, you can put into one chapter of your book like Ray did. Uh, so there's a paper by Bela Nagy and some colleagues at uh, the Santa Fe Institute that analyzed the data from many, many different technologies over the long term and what sort of technological progress they had. And uh, they did show generally exponential curves. And so that's sort of in support of Kurzweil's claim. But you have to be more careful than that. There are some really important qualifications with that research. Uh, one is that they tested laws of technological change with linear regression models, which is not theoretically appropriate because um, the assumptions of independence and so on don't actually aren't satisfied by the data. Um, a bigger one is that. Um, most of the technologies were examined for relatively small time slices, uh, so we can't pick up long-term trends. Another one is that when you're looking at exponential growth patterns, for the first part of the curve, they look the same if they're exponential curves or logistic curves, which is like an S-shaped curve. So depending on which one that turns out to be, the future tech predictions should be very different. Um, and then uh, another is that the performance curves database that Nagi, Nagi is using uh, isn't very representative to, of technologies in general yet. So you have to be really careful when you look at this type of research and not just assume, well, look at all these pretty graphs. Uh, everything's going to change exponentially and uh, it's all going to be good because AI and all these technologies are going to solve our, all our problems and cure death. Uh, you have to look at things a lot more carefully than that. Um, and it's really complicated and really difficult and really easy to be wrong. <laughs> Okay, so so let me ask you about this then. 
what is the personal requirement in terms of knowledge and skills to be able to, to make such a judgment? Um, and another way to, to formulate the same question would be uh, the usual criticism that's leveled against the singularity, or one of the, the ones that I've seen more often that's leveled against the Singularity Institute is something like this. A bunch of young guys uh, gathered together, most of them not really educated, without any advanced degrees. Some of them didn't even graduate from university, trying to save humanity. <laughs> how does that sound to you and, and how accurate or inaccurate is such a description? Um, do you want me to just respond to the, the criticism part um, instead of the first part? Whatever you prefer is, or you okay. think is more appropriate. I'll just respond to that criticism. Um, it's true that uh, in general, uh, our people that we have right now uh, dropped out partway through because they thought they had better things to do with their time. And uh, in fact, we, one of the things that we do is career counseling and uh, for, for certain people who are high impact. And uh, we very often look at uh, the analysis of the situation and, and recommend that they drop out of school and, and do something more productive with their life. Uh, often it's the case that going through academia is the best way to go. Um, but a lot of times it's not. Um, a lot of times it's a lot of hassle and a system that is not really optimized for uh, producing valuable work, but a system that is optimized for, you know, maybe kind of teaching and building up some kind of prestige and producing lots of words in journals. Um, so, you know, I, we have a, a counterpart in Oxford University named the Future of Humanity Institute that is credentialed and is staffed with people who have PhDs and are working a lot of these same problems and I love the work that they put out. It's really valuable, but they're the exception. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we sort of thought that um, working on these problems directly was going to be was more urgent uh, than getting PhDs. Um, but yeah, whether you have a PhD or not, what matters is one, your command of the material. So if you can show that you have the command of the material, then um, the degree is just supposed to be an indicator of that. So you're sort of going directly to the thing that actually matters when, you're, when you look at the command of the material. And then the maybe uh, just as important or more important thing for us is uh, evidence of someone's ability to change their mind in response to evidence and catch themselves in the act of... Uh, falling prey to their common human biases and changing their, changing their mind or using algebra and probability theory instead of their intuitive heuristics. Um, you know, these signs of rational thought and seriously caring about the truth uh, and having true beliefs instead of seriously caring about feeling like we tried to get the truth or signaling that we care about the truth, uh, that, those qualities of rationality are really important as well. So. Um, it's not that we uh, try to avoid people who happen to have PhDs. It's just that we care more about other evidences like actual command of the material and actual command of uh, rational practice and thought. So let me grab that part because it, it is going to also address the first part of the question, which is what is, what is the actual material that you guys are looking for, which is relevant uh, for the work that you do? Uh, at Singularity Institute. 
Is it uh, computer science? Is it advanced mathematics? Is it physics? Is it philosophy? Uh, what is it? It's, uh, so I have this document on my website, lukeprog.com, that's called So You Want to Save the World. And that's sort of a cheeky title, but what it really is is a, an outline of the categories of problems that need to be solved in order, we think, in order for AI to go well instead of poorly for humanity. And so some of the problems are in decision theory, some of the problems are in the cognitive science of value, uh, some of the problems are in AI architectures or mathematics in general, uh, first-order logic, uh, definitely a lot in computer science like Solomonoff induction, how to handle logical uncertainty, things like that. Um, so there's a huge array of problems and that document kind of points you to some of the existing literature on that particular category of problem and then explains uh, what the part that we don't have solved yet is. Uh, and so if researchers are interested in uh, doing research to save the world instead of to get tenure or solve lesser problems, then I invite them to uh, go to lukeprog.com and skim through the document called So You Want to Save the World and see if there are problems in that document that you are expert in and might want to contribute towards solving. Um, I know that's pretty blunt, but uh, it is what I believe. I think this is the most important uh, research problems in the world for the future of humanity and we need really intelligent mathematicians and computer scientists and philosophers and uh, physicists because physicists can do anything uh, to look at those problems and help us solve them. I personally have a big soft spot in my heart for philosophy so let me uh, grab that field. How about philosophy? How important is philosophy to what you guys do and how can one adapt one's knowledge or skills or background in philosophy and put it to work within uh, the context of the Singularity Institute? Yeah. Um, philosophy, of course, is this really broad category of human inquiry. And there's a lot of uh, branches of philosophy that are not very useful to solving our problems. Um, of course, there's sort of the what's sometimes called continental philosophy, things like postmodern philosophy that are uh, almost like an art form or a literary form and not very uh, well informed often by scientific results or correct math. Uh, and so that's not going to be very useful to us. A lot also of um, what's called analytic philosophy is based around the idea of analyzing our concepts by using our intuitions. And that's also not going to be very useful to what we're doing. So the type of philosophy that's useful to the, for the problems we're trying to solve is sometimes called formal philosophy uh, or the kind of most uh, hard scientific versions of naturalistic philosophy. Uh, and in particular, in formal philosophy, um, the stuff about the foundations of probability theory and how to deal with logical uncertainty and also about uh, mathematical decision theory, um, those are probably the most relevant uh, subfields of formal philosophy that are useful for uh, solving the types of problems that we need to solve. Um, for example, I mean, all existing decision theories, when they try to reason about um, calculating the expected utility of changing the decision mechanism at work in some radical way, uh, they run into uh, a problem called Loeb's theorem um, that sort of uh, disallows all current 
decision theories from reasoning sensibly about modifying the decision mechanism. Uh, and we need to understand that better in order to be able to predict whether a strongly self-modifying AI will end up doing good things rather than bad things. Yeah, uh, on, that, on that topic of whether it would do good things or bad things, let me ask you this. Ray Kurzweil is often criticized for being way too optimistic in his assessment about the outcome or the positive effects of a technological singularity. So, in your own estimate, what are our chances of surviving such a phenomenon? Uh, and one of the things that I want to share with you uh, before you give me your answer is this. I'm always shocked uh, by the replies I get from people when I ask this question. Uh, and let me tell you, Michael Anissimo, for example, uh, said, if I remember, 20%. He gave us 20%. He considers himself optimist, and yet he gave us 20% chances of surviving such an event. So let me ask you, what, in your opinion, is our chance of survival and why? Yeah, well, let me start by saying that um, often people think of us as uh, maybe being the opposite side of some kind of coin with Ray Kurzweil because we're operating under different concepts of what the singularity is. Um, but on the other hand, uh, in a way, Ray Kurzweil's vision of what the future will be like in the next few decades is much more similar to ours. Um, because it is true, for example, that a lot of technologies show long-term exponential trends. And this means radical changes uh, such that the future will be much more different than the current uh, uh, era than a lot of people intuitively might think because they have an intuitive linear model of how things are going to progress. So in a sense, uh, Ray Kurzweil's picture of the future is much more similar to ours than uh, to the average person's. But on the other hand, uh, yes, Ray Kurzweil is much more optimistic about what will happen when we create superhuman artificial intelligence. Um, the difficulty in estimating you know, our chances of survival is that it depends entirely uh, on what we do, or hugely on what we decide to do about it. So uh, if we decide, if, if the human race decides to basically spend as much research and uh, resources and effort on uh, making sure that AI is safe when it's first created as it does now, then I have very low chances. Uh, uh, I would give us very low chances of uh, survival of the AI, uh, arrival of AI. Um, whereas, if we decide to start devoting a lot more resources towards solving these problems, the probability of our survival goes up quite a bit. So it depends hugely on what we do about it. Um, right now, I'm very uncertain of uh, the people of our ability to um, persuade the world to invest a lot more resources in working on this problem. So, you know, my chances of uh, surviving this cent of humanity surviving this century are you know not that high maybe five percent or something uh, but I have huge error bars about that um, but remember that that number can move a lot in the positive or the negative direction depending on what we decide to do about the biggest risks that face humanity so in a way your mission statement is in fact to improve the odds of us surviving that event that's right yeah, improve the odds of us surviving and improving the odds of it not just being a survival issue, but being a really good thing for humanity. To survive and prosper. To survive and flourish, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So 
Look, the, the very last question that I always ask of my guests is this. What is the one thing or the single most important message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? Superhuman AI is coming this century. By default, it will be disastrous for humanity. Uh, if you want to make AI a really good thing for humanity, please donate to organizations working on that. Or if you are a researcher, help us solve particular problems in mathematics, decision theory, and cognitive science. Fantastic. And, and in order to do any of those things, you can always contact me, uh, Luke Malhauser, Executive Director of the Singularity Institute at luke at singularity.org. Luke Malhauser, thank you very much for being on Singularity One-on-One -on -one today. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you.